The Map Room, a business owner's guide to the art of harnessing choice. The podcast that explores the world of business through the decisions owners face and the choices they create. Join the conversation with Paul Barnes and Stuart Brown as they walk through some of the toughest decisions you have to make while leading a business and how understanding the choices can be used to guide strategy and optimize outcomes. Brought to you by Map and a host of special guests. Well, hello, and great to have you back with us in the Map Room today for our next episode. We're delighted to carry on, really, a theme that we we went into some detail with last month, and we're going to go more into this month, which is that of the business owner. So last month, we heard Paul McGee, the sumo guy, talk about ostensibly mindset and how your reaction to an event drives the outcome. And he gave us some takeaways as to what we can do to maybe put issues into context so we don't take maybe some issues or ourselves too seriously at the time. We really today want to talk about the journey and when we started this podcast Paul spoke passionately about the map and about the journey and today I'm delighted to say we've got another incredible guest with us. We have another best-selling author, he's another international speaker and I think probably more credibly he is a, a highly successful entrepreneur who's built companies both in the North and the Southern Hemisphere, which I think is very different. And I'm delighted to say a welcome to the map room to Daniel Priestley. Daniel, good morning. Good morning. It is very different in those two hemispheres. For starters, December is freezing up here and it's boiling hot in Australia. (laughs) That's a very key difference. I can imagine where you'd prefer to be today rather than sat talking to... Oh, I quite like like the wintry Christmas. It's very traditional. Um, Most of my Christmases growing up were by the swimming pool with cold salads and cold beers uh, and trying to uh, avoid the 35-degree heat. Don't, don't. I could do with some of that today. I'm actually sniffling after the weekend. I think I've spent too much time in, <laughs> in the cold this weekend. Um, so there are many, many listeners to this podcast, Daniel, who will know you and are big fans of 24 Assets. That's obviously a programme that Paul and Map have used, and we know a lot of our clients are often talking to us about. But today, as I said, I really wanted to talk about your concept of the entrepreneur journey. It's something that resonates with me having been through that journey, and I think uh, will be really useful to talk through for most of our listeners, and hopefully they'll recognise that they're either at the start of that journey, where they are on that journey, and maybe we can give them some confidence as to what they can look at, and they're not on their own, and maybe where they can start to look forward into the outcomes in that journey. Let's, let's go in. I love it. Favourite topic. Excellent. So, first of all, give me some background, give me some context, because I'm conscious that when, I, when I've looked at it, I don't know how long you've had this context, and obviously a lot of the information I've seen is very data-driven and very up-to-date for that reason. But talk to me about how did you first come along this, and when did, when did you develop this, this concept? So, I've been through my own entrepreneurial journey several times. I've um, built a number of companies from zero to a million. I've built three companies up to 10 million of valuation. Um, I've built teams. And uh, even currently, I've got a global group of companies um, with about 100 people working. And um, uh, we're in you know, the UK, we're in Australia, we're in the Americas, Canada and, and USA. Um, and I've basically been very involved in my own startup journeys, right? So I've experienced it firsthand as a driver inside the vehicle. Um, but also, uh, running an entrepreneur accelerator for for about ten years, we ran a weekly get together with entrepreneurs that anyone could come and join. 
and it was a roundtable discussion. And something like I, I think probably six or seven thousand different businesses came through wow. that over over ten year period. Right, an average of about I don't know twenty people a week. Uh, you know, ten to twenty people a week coming and sitting and 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 talking through, and you just hear the same story over mm. and over and over again. And it's like everyone says, "Oh, I'm going to tell you how incredibly unique uh, my situation is," and you go, "Yeah, I've got this clocked. I can almost guarantee you've got this number of people, you've got this revenue per person. These are your three big problems." It's like I could complete their sentences. Uh, as they were as they were saying them and you know everyone's sitting there thinking that they are the most unique little snowflake that's ever fallen to earth and in actual fact it's an incredibly predictable journey um and then when i went and checked the data the data just confirms this it's it's the same in the data and it's the same in the western world um and you know when i listen to a podcast and i hear someone talking through their journey and where they got stuck it's like yeah i've just heard that a hundred times fascinating but again hopefully that will give lots of listeners confidence because i totally agree with you there daniel and you know we hear lots of i've been involved in lots of industries now obviously in this sort of digital agency space and you do hear that obviously people we respect the fact that to every business owner maybe second to their family but one of the most important aspects of their life is that business but getting them to open up and explain that what they're going through is not that unique is really helpful so it's fascinating that this is you know as i say i've seen the data so i you know mm. because i recognize it i know how accurate it is but it's important sometimes to sort of explain that through yeah if the if the if the problems are predictable the solutions are predictable um and that you know if the journey is predictable it's it's kind of like london right London, if you arrive and you sit there and go, this is a massive city, I have no idea how to get around. If someone shows you the tube map and says, it's pretty easy to get around London if you know how to use this tube map, uh, then it's like, oh, okay, that's a pretty good starting point. Now, obviously, you're going to have your own unique experience getting around London, and you're going to see things that someone else might not have seen. But mostly, we can all get around the tube map, and, and you can certainly get around a lot faster if you know how to if you know how to use it and navigate it. Funny, quick, funny little story on that one. I was, and it's the way my mind works, Daniel, probably tells you more about me than anything else, and hence why I love the concept of the map room and all those kind of things and writing things down. I didn't realise that the tube map was just a, you know, cartography, a picture. I didn't realise that actually if you come out at, say, Leicester Square, you can't turn right and go to. So I stupidly thought that what I was looking at and where I was in the world, I could turn around this corner and there was that... Um, tube station but anyway but your point is absolutely right <laughs> so let, let's start with um the startup phase and I, i've got i've got a question here um and i suppose it's it's a challenge in one way into into understanding the startup because you talk very often about pre-revenue and it's probably me and it's probably my age and i'd be fascinated to hear your side of this that I've always found pre-revenue a bit of a challenge. And the reason I say that is I often, when I'm talking to people, I often say, look, you know, once you've defined your ambition, because I think everything comes from vision and values, and you, mm -hmm. can, and you can define your proposition, can you then verify that pro proposition through commercial success? And sometimes, therefore, when I challenge people for whom they are pre-revenue, and I think that's a, pre a, a fairly, um, I'm going to say maybe 2,000 onwards, a fairly recent piece, have you got a business if nobody's paying you something? So am I just too old-fashioned or just pre-revenue or something? 
yeah, you don't have a business, but you're 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 in setup phase. And you know, it's it's if we were talking about property development, you know, there's a pre-construction phase and there's also a pre-rental phase. Yeah. <laughs> you know, let's say we want to build a building. We're going to go through all the planning phase and then we're going to go through the actual construction phase and then we're going to go through renting it out and making money off it or selling it, selling the, the, the units. Um, and, uh, you know, they, these are different phases. Yeah. And just like just like construction, if you want to put up something significant, if you want to put up a big building, you're probably going to do a little bit more planning um, and you're going to do a little bit more kind of research and, you know, all of those sorts of things. And spending, start spending money. Yeah, that's your point. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll you'll spend stuff on, you'll spend money on things that won't give you a payback for two years um, if you're a big developer. So, um, yeah. So there's, look, there's the pre-revenue phase. There's a few things that um, I like to get clear from the outset. You mentioned it. What's the ambition? Do you want a lifestyle business or a performance yeah. business? This should... This should be obvious to you. Um, a, a lifestyle business is a business that's built around fun, freedom, and flexibility. It's built around your own personal balanced portfolio of needs. If you've got a family, you're going to incorporate your family um, uh, goals into your lifestyle business. Uh, if you've got, um, you know, a dream to live part time in a sunny location and part time going to the snow, you're going to take all of that into consideration. And you're also going to try and avoid things like taking on debt and obligations mm. and boards of directors. And you're going to try and avoid uh, selling time for money. You're going to try and avoid pinning yourself to a particular location. Yep. So these are all the attributes of a lifestyle business. It's a new breed of business. It's something that really began to um, bubble up in the early 2000s and has taken really um, a full identity in 2020s. So a lifestyle business is a perfectly valid choice. In fact, it's a, it's probably the best mm. choice. And then a performance business is something that is going to get big and valuable. Um, you're going to make sacrifices in your personal life to, to get performance. And you're going to probably have to take on either debt or a funding partner um, in order to get it big and valuable, which means you're going to have obligation. You're going to have, um, you're going to have to have greater levels of discipline. Um, with a bigger business comes a bigger leadership team and management team, which is a really costly overhead. So you're going to have to have a bigger business, um, maybe 50 to 150 people on the team. So there's all of those considerations. So the first thing is ambition. Do you want a lifestyle or a performance business? Can I ask you there, Daniel, again, you know, obviously I said at the, at the top of this that, you know, you have and and my understanding is, and I can obviously tell by your accent, you started in the Southern southern Hemisphere. And I've seen you speak before very passionately about the concept of lifestyle. And, and we've raised that many, many times on this podcast. And in fact, one of our early editions was, was with a financial planner for that reason. There seems to be, and I think maybe you've said it's changed, whether that was the pandemic and all those things. But I think very much the English culture tended to sort of look down on a lifestyle business. So I'm fascinated as to whether, did you come with, have you always had that view or have you seen that, if you like, you know, become its own its own thing more and more rather than, as you say, this, I would say, Americanized view of, I've said before, you know, find it, fund it and flip it kind of mentality. I think the lifestyle business is a new innovation. Um, it's only really very recently that you could organize a remote team and find talented yeah. people who want to join a remote team and that you could build something that's mostly based on media software and intellectual property. 
um, and that you could really punch above your weight with three to 12 people, um, that you could have a global audience that you've built online and all of those things. So essentially, a lot of the pieces of the puzzle came into existence over the last 20 years, but the puzzle has really come together in the last three or four years, um, especially sped on by the pandemic. So regardless of what people's attitudes were, um, uh, look, I personally don't think there's so much as an English culture. I think there's um, different pockets. You know, if you're talking about, you know, the city of London, they're going to have a very different view of what a business should look like compared to if you're in Bristol or Bath. Um, you know, if you're talking to some entrepreneurs down in Poole, um, they're going to be talking very differently to some entrepreneurs in Liverpool. Yeah. So, um, you know, so essentially you know, you're going to find different pockets of entrepreneurs all over the all over the place. One thing that's interesting is that London tends to suck all the ambitious mm. people into one location and it leaves behind it a wake of um, different mindsets outside of London, you know, and, and people who, who uh, vibe with the big global ambition will tend to be people who move down to London pretty, pretty quickly, um, you know, or, or focus their energy on that. So, you know, the UK has that dynamic of being a fairly small place geographically with a very big global city, um, very, you know, close to a lot of people. So that does impact things. But realistically, we're talking about a very new innovation. We're talking yep. about something that is is fairly new anyway. So people might have had a negative view of it in 2015 because it probably was a little too early uh, to, to do much about it. Fascinating. You've mentioned there... Um... The sort of three to twelve people piece. And I know that's let's let's move on now to the next stage, and that's what you call your boutique because that to me is the well. Just just quickly, the next phase is wilderness. Typically, apologies. Yes, of course. Yeah. So wilderness is normally founder and co-founder. Uh, maybe it's normally one to three people, and you're trying to figure out whether you're onto something or not. Um, and uh, it's important that I stopped you there because seventy-five percent of all yeah. businesses in yeah. the UK don't have any employees. Um, and they struggle with uh, something like 75% of businesses do 7% of revenue. Yeah. Um, so they're struggling. They're trying to, they're trying to figure things out. They're trying to get a, um, they're trying to get a plan together. They're trying mm. to get some traction, you know, whether if they're a performance business, they're working on things like product market fit and innovation and technology. And, you know, do they have something that's going to be ready for the market? And if they're a lifestyle business, they've basically just fallen into the trap of doing everything themselves. Yep. Um, they're selling time for money. They've got clients. They've, they're not spending any time working on the business. They're just in the business all the time, um, hoping magically someone rides mm. in and, and uh, saves them or something magic happens, falls from the sky. Um, so, uh, you know, normally there are a lot of design flaws, Um one of the things I very commonly see is people selling things that are too cheap and require yep. too much volume. Yep. And small businesses are not very good at volume. Um, they're, they're, they're terrible at volume. So therefore, if they're selling something that's $29, it's just highly unlikely that you're going to sell 10,000 of them a year. Where do you think, can I just, sorry to cut across, where do you think that comes from? Is it is it a, if we go back to that sort of, um, you know, solo practitioner, is it a, I mentioned before about obtaining sort of commercial verification for your for your proposition. Is it a I'm not confident enough to charge, let's just say forty nine dollars rather than twenty nine dollars in your example, 
or is it a I need to start somewhere I'm going to go after long hanging fruit what what do you think drives that sort of price fear there's a couple of things that drive it um the primary driver is the schooling system the schooling system teaches people how to become component labor so component labor is essentially you become a skilled component within a larger organization um so you become a nurse in a you know in a in a hospital or you become a teacher in a school or you become a police officer in a police force so you're becoming component labor and that's what the whole schooling system is designed to mm. teach you so essentially they try and beat out of you the idea that you're meant to have a big vision for something and try and beat into you that you're meant to play a uh, a cooperative role within a big organization and um and then essentially people then get out there in the market and play small and and try and most small businesses are component labor. Yeah. So it's a photographer saying, hey, I can take mm. photos for you. Or it's a web developer saying, hey, mm. I can build you a little website. Um, or, you know, sometimes someone finds a little trinkety thing. You know, I can bake biscuits and, uh, you know, and they kind of just take whatever they can do and they try and take it to market. Yeah. Um, so they Ford engineer what they have rather than reverse engineer what the market wants. That makes a lot of sense. And, and I think when we look at the sort of history of many of, of map clients, again, you can probably see that. You can probably see the gestation. And so the sort of the embryo of the agency tends to be that 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 craft. So somebody mm. uses, creates the business as a vehicle to build the craft, as you say, whatever that is, whether it's design, whether it's web. And then they start to either find two or three friends potentially, or they start to say, the one we hear very often is, well, I'm a great coder, but I can't sell or something like that. So then maybe is that where you start to see the, you know, people, you know, coming together more and whether that's three solo practitioners joining together, which we have clients that do that. Or people actually say, do you know what, now it's time to start a proper business in inverted commas. Yeah, and it's important to know as well that every, almost every single human being is a natural entrepreneur. Um, you know, when a school teacher gives kids an assignment in maths, the natural inclination for young children is to try and go and ask for help, get someone else to do it for them. Um, figure out who's already smarter than they are and, and get someone to come and join their team. Um, and we label that cheating. I was going to say, um, I, was, it, I was called, told I was lazy at school. Now you're telling me I was entrepreneurial at a young you're age. entrepreneurial. I'm loving it. Um, you know, I was told I was a class clown, right? Yeah. I was a disruptor. Yeah. And now I'm held up on a pedestal for being a disruptor. <laughs> the best, the best entrepreneurs, if you put an entrepreneur on the front page of Inc. magazine, they call them disruptor. It's fascinating you say that because I'd never thought about the concept of component lay before. And as you were explaining it, it was making absolute sense to me. And I suppose that point that, you know, when you, if if you say, if that's, if you're the teacher in that example, that's probably what you're expecting from your class. And that's no disrespect to the teacher and their craft of whatever they're teaching. But yes, the, the person who wants to be more... Uh, individual potentially or more excited i was always guilty of being more excited about the next lesson not the ne not the lesson i was in necessarily so yeah fascinating that it, and yes i find it funny that disruption is now as you say a badge of honor rather than a you know a reason i was stood i was stood to attention in the corridor for most of my school days but <laughs> sorry let's carry on with your concept of boutique because i'm conscious we've gone off the subject slightly there so the boutique is when you get past that first phase of wilderness you've you figure out that you do have market fit, you do have a product or service that could scale and you enroll a small team. So normally a boutique is three to 12 people 
And the beautiful thing about a three to 12 person business is that it's self-organizing. So if you put if you put three to 12 people in a room, they will easily self-organize. Let's say you let's say you want to get three to 12 people to create lunch and you put a bunch of ingredients on the on the bench um, and uh, they're going to just talk amongst themselves, figure out what those ingredients could make. Um, they're going to stand around having a great fun time, great conversation, and they'll all pitch in together pretty effortlessly. And you're not going to see any like leadership or management structures. You're not going to like have anyone kind of you know, dominate the group or, or, or anyone be elected as a leader officially, you don't need that, right? It actually just kind of works um, just fine. If you try and do that with any bigger than 12, you're going to have to break them into subgroups. You're going to have to have a, uh, you know, a group of three or four people buttering bread and three or four people making salad and three or four people doing the barbecue, right? You're going to have to break those people into sub teams because people are not very good at organizing when it gets bigger than 12 people. Mm. Um, you need a leader and a manager and, um, and you need all of those, you know, someone conducting the orchestra, bringing it all together. It's I've I've sorry I, I've always said I've said it numerous times on this podcast and I say it to many people you know I often bring things back to sport sporting analogies but that's why we say sports teams have limited numbers for that reason you know whether it's soccer eleven whether it's you know my sport fifteen even go to the biggest team sports you know NFL they're in smaller teams for that reason I agree with you totally as soon as you get and I've seen it with lots of agencies as soon as you get past that twelve to thirteen people mark just the communication just suddenly crashes mm. and and it's that and it's that how how do you i suppose and this maybe is where you you start to do your um sort of scaling phases how do you how do you recognize and then how do you plan for the impact of that let's just use your numbers the 13th employee could suddenly make the communication breakdown yeah the 13th employee will divide the team in two uh, around 13 people, you'll have the original crew who are the first few mm. people who joined and they're not very talented and they're not very skilled and they're not very qualified. Um, and then you'll have the new hires who are more skilled, more talented, more qualified, um, and they start to grate against each other. The original crew want to be treated as special mm. because they were there first. Yeah. The, the new hires want to be treated as respected because they're more qualified. They also don't believe in the idea that they were there first because yep. they, they believe it's a small business anyway. Their last yep. company was 50, 60 people plus. Um, they're not at all, <laughs> they don't think this is a, uh, there's anything special about yep. being part of this. So there's 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 the division. Um, as you get 15, 16, 17, 18 people working together, you get romantic relationships forming. Um, so two people will start dating um, and you know, you'll get friendships and clicks um, yeah. Some people are, are socializing together and to the exclusion of others, all that sort of stuff yeah. happens when you get into those, those numbers. So before you go to the 13th person, there's a couple of things. Number one, I would say don't, right? That's not going to wow. be a lifestyle business, right? Okay. So you don't want to have a 13th yeah. person. You'd be better off firing one or two people who aren't <laughs> performing and bringing in yeah. Uh, one or two. You might even be better off going back down to eight. Yeah. Um, you know, the army builds its all of its teams are based on sections of eight. Yeah. Um so the only reason you go to 13 is because you're on the path to 40 or 50 people. 40 mm. if you're more of a tech company, 50 if you're more of a services business. And if you don't have any intention of going to 40 or 50 people plus, 
Yeah. Just don't, don't it. just don't go to 13. Um, don't wreck your, don't wreck your good little business. You're onto a winner. So what you should be focused on is revenue per person. Revenue per person. Let's imagine you've got 10 people uh, and you've got 800 grand revenue. Um, so that's going to be, it's on the leanish side, right? It'll yep. probably be making a little bit of profit. But if you can take that up to 10 people doing 1.2 million, yeah, 20 grand per person. Now you've got a profitable business. It's probably making two, 300 grand. Um, and then if you can do 1.5 million with 10 people, uh, you know, now you've got a very profitable business um, that uh, that's making hundreds of thousands of pounds and, and paying out bonuses and all, all sorts of things. It, it's funny there. And, 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 and that's where I think the clarity of that, that what you said there is, is gold dust for agency owners. I came into this industry not being in, in, from agency land and I was concerned that those people I met and in fact I, I invested in an agency where the growth model was absolutely uh, capacity led. So this number of bodies, so this is our day rate, we need this many people and my concern was we all know it's it's always been difficult to recruit, it's, it's become harder in the last few years for lots of different reasons and so I was always concerned that the growth risk was always on the people and then for all the th reasons you've just said you have different, you have clashes, you have tensions, all those things. We did a model and in fact one of the last agencies I, I sold was we sat there and said, myself and, and the founder, we sat there and said, okay, how do we reverse this? How do we make twice? Can we make as much money with half the people? That was the, mm. the first premise. And we proved that we could for doing off a lot of the things that you just said and keeping that discipline. And it is that it is that um, understanding and I suppose bringing the map piece back in with the the, the help of, of, you know, your finance function is understanding those metrics because I think the risk of just chasing the KPI that maybe says it's revenue per head is assumed without understanding why you're measuring it it's assuming that well to double my business i just need twice as many people when sometimes you've said that can be absolutely catastrophic yeah and and it's highly likely to be catastrophic um between 13 and 40 people yeah um you're too big to be small too small to be big it's important to know that revenue per person is an is a output it's a symptom of assets so what it's not productivity it's assets so there's an element of productivity to it but ultimately the way you predictably and reliably increase the revenue per person is you add assets to the business so the primary assets that you can add tend to be things like intellectual property media and software um and if you're you know if you're a smaller business it's probably going to be more intellectual property and media um than software development but i have yep. seen plenty of small businesses develop some you know boutique software and do very yep. well from that um but you're going to you know the more you develop let's say for example let's say you're a boutique agency 10 people if you write a book and give away a thousand copies of that book per year that's going to drive a lot of business through the door if yep. you win a major award that's going to drive business through the door um, if you create content on your blog and that drives SEO, that's within a niche, um, that's going to drive business through the door. If you create a predictable roadmap for your clients where they go through stages and steps and they tick off the work um, and you've actually created a lot of intellectual property for each of yep. those stages and steps yep. and that you can rinse, repeat, um, you know, that's going to create work. If you create a podcast or start speaking on big stages or you're a guest, 
um, that's going to create um, a lot more clients who want to work with you. So essentially what you're trying to do is build out those digital assets. Um, and if you can build those digital assets, that's going to drive up revenue per revenue per person. So the goal is to constrain the capacity uh, by not going above 12 people, mm. have a limited supply and an excessive demand. And the ultimate scenario is you end up with tens of thousands of people who know who you are and you, they know your business and your firm or your founder mm. um, and they're following and they're interested but there's a limited capacity to work with you. So therefore, mm. it dry, the demand and supply tension drives up the price and the profitability. You only cherry pick the best clients who are a perfect mm. fit and you discard all the other clients who are commoditized. Um, and, um, you know, and that's, that is the lifestyle boutique. Yeah, I saw an incredible version of that. Um, and I know they've moved on slightly. I don't know if you've ever come across um, Jonathan Courtney and AJ Smart. And there was this business, it was in Berlin, and I was looking at the metrics thinking, how's that possible? And then it was fortunate um, to see him speak in Mantra and talk to him was, you know, he'd spent some time in, unsurprisingly, Silicon Valley. And I think it was even a Google exec came along and said, well, your first big problem is you're not charging enough. And they, all, they already thought they were, you know, being cheeky with what they were charging. Uh, and so they were running design sprints at 60 grand a pop, 80 grand a pop suddenly. And their thing now is is is, is um, facilitation. But it is, that, it is that piece of they became so – it was like that classic restaurant. Well, you can – you can do this, but is it? But you can't have us for ten months. It was it was creating that you know incredible insatiable appetite, um, mm. you know. And and I just I, you know I just saw the metrics of that business. It was phenomenal. Yeah, uh, I mean, this is the crazy thing today. I'm seeing businesses that are three or four people doing two million pounds a year. Mm. Um, you know, when they really catch on, they catch on mm. in a big way. And if you can build that that insane demand and supply tension, mm. uh, you know. So for example. A small team that I saw, uh, they've got 50,000 followers on social media. There's a team of four. They're doing two million pounds. Mm, um, nice. You know, so they've created demand and supply tension with 50,000 followers uh, and, um, you know, hyper, hyper, you know, unrealistic, uh, un unnatural levels of profit. So you've mentioned a word there that does uh, always intrigue me, tension. So you mentioned, obviously, you know, you're growing your business and you're following, I'd say, the more traditional model, the sort of, you know, the, the, um, the you know, the headcount style model. And obviously, you get the team dynamics change, startup versus scale up. And so I, I suppose my question would be, what's, what's the good tension to have in the business and what's the bad tension to have in the business? Well, the good tension is demand and supply tension. Um, so if you have... You know, it's very, it's very simple. If you could be the only place that sells cold beer on a hot summer's day at the football, right? You're going to go home with a big profit. Um, so demand and supply tension. When there's lots of people who want something and not many of those things mm. available, that is the essentially that's the fundamental driver of profitability. Mm. Um, and people forget this fundamental driver. You know, they think that it's service or it's good reputation. You yeah. know, that it's you know all of those things. It's just demand and supply tension. Um, airlines can deliver an amazing level of service, and they do an incredible thing. They fly you through the air, um, and they're not very profitable. Uh, and then Rolex does a very boring thing. It manufactures mm. a piece of technology that was well over a hundred years yeah. old. 
Um, it does it in a pretty normal way. Uh, and yet it has an 18 month waiting list. Rolex yep. is terrible for customer service or any yep. of those sorts of things, but they're super profitable because there's demand and supply tension. So the good, good type of tension is, is demand and supply tension. The next good type of tension is a deep understanding of what makes your customers tick. Every single customer buys to resolve tension. Uh, so the only reason someone buys something is they've experienced some form of tension between their current reality and their desired reality. Yep. Um, and you, you know, very, very smart businesses understand that tension. Um, as far as bad tension, it's the tension of selling time for money and, you know, running out of time every day mm. and not having enough time. Um, where you've sold you've sold yourself at a price that's too cheap. You've sold in, you know, you're selling something that's annoying and repetitive for you to do. Um, and you've got the tension between where you'd like to be and where you are. Fascinating, fascinating. I'm interested in in you you mentioned something earlier, and, and this maybe this comes into your um your in in your desert stage and and how do you start to grow absolutely accepting your point that to do that you've got to decide your performance business or your lifestyle business um one of the things that you mentioned before about maybe a reticence to either have debt absorb debt seek investment all those kind of things how many times do you think that's a key driver so somebody gets to a point Mm. and you mentioned about bringing a you know a management or leadership team in and very often in the agency space that we see that then tends to be and it does come back to your driver of this debate non-billable people so they tend to say i need a head of head of people is a very fashionable thing we need i need an operations director i need a head Mm. of people Mm. i need a whatever and that tends to then be somebody who's not billing and therefore puts pressure on and I've seen lots of organisations um, put a, I'm going to say, self-inflicted uh, ceiling on themselves mm. because they say, you know, I, I don't want, you know, I don't even want an overdraft, let alone a debt facility or funding or whatever. Uh, what's your view on that in terms of if you want to go for it, the things that maybe the, the individuals are holding themselves back on? Yeah, so once you get to a certain size, you need... You need to acknowledge that uh, in order to be of a certain size, you're going to have to develop an asset and the asset's going to have to be quite a large asset. And it's going to take, um, there's there's something called a J-curve and a J-curve is where you lose money on something before making a lot of money off it. So the shape of the J is what the J-curve refers to. So essentially, if I was to buy a very expensive piece of equipment, and the first 18 months is paying off that equipment, but after it's paid off, it, yeah. it, it's a very, very profitable thing to have. That would be a J-curve investment. Um, and essentially, once you get into bigger businesses, you've got lots of J-curves. Um, and you know, you've got things that cost money up front. I'll give you, give you a small example. You can sponsor an event, and that event might cost you £10,000 to sponsor the event. And you get a, a booth at the event and you get to be a speaker, but you've got to pay 10,000 pounds now. The event's yeah. not for three months. Um, so 10,000 pounds just sitting out there. Um, and then when you do speak at the event, you generate you know 300 inquiries and leads and those leads turn into sales meetings and those sales meetings turn into sales and some of them come in straight away and some of them come in a little later. So you've spent 10,000 pounds Three months later, the event, three months after that, you've got sales that have come rushing in. And then 
three months after that, you've mm. got loads of sales. It was. It turns out that you've made a hundred thousand pounds worth of sales. That's a classic little J curve, mini mini yep. J curve. Ten thousand out, and then it takes three months, then six months, and then bang. Uh, now you've now you've landed a hundred thousand pound deal, and you and you say, "Wow, that was a great investment." Times that by a hundred little things, right? <laughs> now you've got ten thousand here, and ten thousand there, and ten thousand there. And in order to achieve a certain scale and size, maybe you need to be sponsoring a new, an event every every month, yep. let's say. So there's hundred and twenty thousand worth of little J curves going out there. Maybe you want to um, write a book, and you want to give that book out to a thousand people a month. Right, there's lots of little J curves. Mm. Maybe you want to invest in some software, and it's going to cost two hundred and fifty thousand to develop a software package. But then it's going to have a thousand people pay forty nine a month, um, and it's going to pay back once those thousand users are on it. So there's all these little J curves. You get to a certain size, there's no avoiding it. So you're going to need capital. You're going to need yep. to smooth that out. So you're either going to save up the capital and rather than paying out dividends and wages and all that sort of stuff, you're going to sit on a balloon of cash that you've earned, which is an incredibly inefficient way, yeah. you know, to, to do it. It's, it's almost like, you know, refining your own petrol uh, to put in your car. <laughs> so you could do it that way, or you're going to get debt, um, in which case you'll need some form of personal guarantee. Um, or you're going to get investment, in which case you're going to give up some of the upside, quite a significant part of the upside. And often control in that environment and, as well. And you're yeah. going to have to have some grown-up features in the business. Yeah. Um, so all of that sort of stuff. This is why I say for most people, unless you're mm. excited by this idea, like if you're sitting there, here, ge genuinely, if you're sitting there going, oh, mm. I don't like debt and I don't want this and I don't want that mm. and I don't want it, then shut up. Just mm. don't hire the 13th person. Keep yeah. Just give up on the big ambition. It's like saying, I want to be a professional tennis player, but I don't want to pay for a coach and I don't want to get on a yep. plane and I don't want to travel and I've got a young family, so I don't want to go over here. Fine, those are all good good mm. excuses. Those are good reasons, but you're not going to be a professional tennis player. Stop it. Give up on the ambition. It, it's fascinating. The number, and, I've see, and I see this quite a lot in the agency space, but I see it in lots of small businesses where, as you said there, they are... Because they they maybe not we we've coined this phrase at Map financial maturity and that's not to say you necessarily achieve maturity but it's as you learn as as you're on your journey what what do you learn and you, we're talking there about working capital or working capital requirements and very often we see small businesses that because they don't want the debt and the things you've said they're literally saving up for the next hire or the whatever and sometimes the faces and we sit there and say but that's your money. Wouldn't you like that in your pocket? That's let let me show you how. And also, subject to any uh, any change in any budget, dividends are still you know a very tax efficient way of extracting value out of your business. The number of times I say to people, and particularly in small business space, that I say, okay, look, before you start before you start hiring that person, pay yourself properly. And that maybe come back to some of the things you said first, but it is fascinating how they they won't they'll they'll make those sacrifices. Mm. But also, you know, are these people are they are these people saving up for their house because they don't want a mortgage? Yeah, you know, I would be surprised if they're doing that. Um, you know, do they not have credit cards? Like, mm. you know, do they have they not seen the benefit of just simply buying stuff on a credit card and clearing it at the end of the month? Uh, you know, there's all all sorts of ways to have very manageable debt. But the point is yeah. this: 
I'm, I do, I do not believe in convincing people to grow up in business. Yep. Have a lifestyle business, three to 12 people. It's the best answer. It's perfect for, I'd say it's perfect for 90% of business owners. Yep. Here's the thing. If, if someone came to me, Stuart, no disrespect to you whatsoever. Yeah. If you came to me and said, I want to play Wimbledon, I want to be a Wimbledon finalist. I can take one look at you and say that is not going to happen. You can take one look at me and say that's not going to happen. Right? You've got more. You've got more chance. You've got the accent, and you're half my weight, so you're halfway there. I'm I'm under six foot, right? Yeah. Straight yeah. away, I'm I'm yeah. 41 years yeah, yeah. old, right? Yeah. I'm 41 years old. I'm under six foot. There is yeah. no way yeah. on earth in hell. Forget about it. Just keep three to 12 people and just accept. You're a five foot nine tennis player. You're never going to be professional, <laughs> right? Enjoy being a local club champion. That's your uh, yeah. that's your goal. Enjoy playing tennis, but you're yeah. not going to be a pro. I, I also think you, you you've hit on something else there, which you know is not necessarily what we wanted to to cover in this episode, um, because we have covered it elsewhere and we will cover it going forward. But it's probably just worth a minute on is this point about the journey and enjoying the journey. And and I've said you know I have made those mistakes. Daniel, where I've had very materialistic goals and I was working in cultures that were that driven. Um, you know, working in the 80s starts it off for you. But sitting there now and, and, and telling these business owners, do you know what the most important thing now is you enjoy this journey? Don't be fixated on this this thing, as you say. Don't be fixated on centre court. Mm. It's never going to happen. But enjoy your journey. You know, enjoy, if to use the same analogy, just enjoy your sports club at the weekend. Don't worry about the guy turning up who's, you know, six foot eight and younger. Just enjoy it. But I will say this. There are certain people, and it's largely a phase of life thing, that absolutely enjoy, and I mean enjoy, belligerent, passionate, focused 60-hour weeks. Now, everyone yep. loses their mind with this. Everyone sits there and go, oh, Elon Musk is really unfair because he's making people do long hours. There are people who like that. Yeah. Um, there are also people who love going to the gym and bodybuilding and just they're, they're in the gym three, four hours a day. Um, and there are also people who want to represent Team GB and they will do their, their sport until they bleed. Mm. Um, and they enjoy that journey. Now, you can't take it away from people. And this is something that's really important to get across to, to entrepreneurs. Beyond a certain point, you are up against people who are totally built mm. or belligerent focused. They are kicking doors down from five o'clock in the morning till 11 o'clock at night. They do not care. They, they sit there and they go, yep, you know what? I don't mind sleeping six hours. Mm. I don't mind doing working breakfasts, working lunches. I don't mind not seeing my family. I don't mind not seeing my mm. friends. Um, now, there's someone I follow on social media She's a 30-year-old CEO. She runs a 200 million group of uh, 200 million group of companies. She recently shared a copy of her diary on the week, and it is full from morning till night. Um, and that's what she loves. She's built for it. And there's people screaming at her. Oh, but what about work-life balance? What about this? She doesn't want work-life balance. Yeah. She wants crazy level of focus. Does she have kids? No. Do, you know? Is is she? Is she doing it at the detriment of other things? Absolutely, right? Does she have a $200 million net worth at age 30? Yep, right? That's what she's focused on. So the point is, is that there comes a point where enjoying the journey for a lot of people, for the vast majority, 90% mm. of people means balance. And there are some people 
myself included from age yep. age 20 to age 35 what enjoyment genuinely looked like for me was excluding absolutely everything but business and rolling out of bed and working until 11 o'clock at night and that was my enjoyment i loved it on the weekends i ran conferences i was always on a plane i was taking clients out to dinner all i only wanted to live breathe and think one thing on the toilet i was reading business books <laughs> right that was me that that's that's the, the classic and i love it that's the vince lombardi quote which is you know i just woke up at dawn and and worked every day to exhaustion yeah it's the it's the same thing but but that to me is the but i think you you've said it there very passionately and very well daniel that's but that's about finding your enjoyment and that's what i'm saying you know so long as that enjoyment is right for you as you say don't pull somebody up who's doing the opposite you know lots of people you know, I've said on this podcast, and others, you know, I must be mad because I've I've built and sold numerous uh, businesses, and and I, and I recognised at some point in my career it, it was that, um, uh, you know, the sort of concentration of chaos that actually gave gave me endorphins, if that makes any sense. Totally. Um, and and so it is that it is that thing totally that you know you've got to get. And and let's go back to your point on on lifestyle versus um, versus performance business. That's where I see them fail. Where you know they'll they'll bring someone in or exactly that they'll they'll tend to bring as you said that the scale up mentality is very different and the scale up mentality when the startup has been well we all do bits and pieces or you know I went for a business where oh we all have a longer lunch on a Friday sorry well, how does that work because <laughs> just because they did and suddenly that as you say that culture comes in and actually it's that if you're not careful you can't win because as the founders or the CEO or whatever position you're in you're recruiting people for that next stage who are probably excited by the fact that you're now growing up. Mm. You're still hanging on to other people and it ends up just imploding. Yeah, it really does. You've got a you got mixed mash of expectations and and it really is this big thing of you've got to choose and you've got to choose and go all in on am I building at my dream home or am I building yeah. a 10-story block of flats? It's yeah. not going to work to try and build both. You're not going to have your dream home and a 10-story block of flats accidentally yeah. uh, work together. So let's let's talk about the desert. The desert is yeah. crossing of the desert is where you're going to go from um, the small dynamic core team of 3 to 12 and now you're going to go through a phase of going up to 40 to 50 people. Uh, for a period of time, you're going to be too big to be small and too small to be big. Um, you're going to uh, here's what it feels like when it's when it's the right thing to do. You've got a plethora of amazing opportunities, and all of them make financial sense, but they're all they all require investment and they all require people. So let's say you've built this little piece of technology and it's working. You've got you know. 200 grand a month worth of revenue. And you now see that there are conferences you could be sponsoring in the USA, Canada, Singapore, Dubai, London. Um, you would need to send teams of people out to go and represent those conferences. You would also need to have customer support people. Um, you've figured out some Facebook ad strategies, some Google ad strategies for scale. Uh, you've found an acquisition. You could buy this company. Yep. It would plug straight in. And you're sitting there like salivating at the whole world of opportunities that are coming at you. And now you've got to pause for a little bit and you've got to say, all right, what are we going to look like at 50 people? We're going to have a board of an executive team. We're going to have a CEO, CTO, CFO, CMO, and COO. And those five people are going to run this business and they're going to be an amazing team that's combined. We're going to have a board of directors who represent our funding and our finance and our grown-up ambitions, right? So we'll have, have to have some directors. 
we'll probably have a customer success team. We'll probably have a sales team. We'll probably have a uh, developer team. Uh, we'll probably have finance and accounting function. And it's like, okay, we're going to be about, you know, four or five people in this team. We're going to be six or seven people in that team. We're going to have, you know, this. And then we've got geographies. We're probably going to need a sales team in the Americas. We're going to need a sales team in Asia Pac. And we're probably going to need some, you know, support people. So you're going to build out an org chart and you're going to say, all right, what does that org chart look like? And then you're going to say, okay, what sort of revenue underpins that org chart profitably and what would generate that revenue? So now you're doing a lot of um, planning in the same way that if you, I was going to put up a 10-story apartment building down the yeah. road, I'm not going to just start breaking dirt. I'm going to do a lot of architectural planning. And, and I, before I start building, I'm going to know exactly how many doorknobs and hinges yeah. I'm going to need to know how many cubic feet of cement. I'm going to need to know exactly how many panes of glass uh, are going to be in that building. And you sit there and go, gee, that's pretty intense level of planning. Yeah, because I'm putting up a 10-story building, right? Yeah. So, of course, it's going to be, be that. So, you're going to work with your team to build that out. And then as quickly as possible, you're going to raise the capital, hire the people, and you're going to cross the desert. Um, and I've seen people do this in three or four days. So. Wow. What they've done is they've pulled together a three-day conference with 70 or 80 yeah. people um, and the, the funding has been secured in place. They've brought in all the people. They've organized everyone into teams and they've gone from a 12-person business to a 50-person business uh, by running a three-day conference and getting everyone all signed up and all, all engaged. Bang, then they hit it. Um, and that's, that is the perfect execution of a crossing of the desert and a bad execution of the de crossing of the desert is... 13 people, 14, 15, 16, yes, 17, yes. back to 14, back to 13, back to yeah. 14, 15, 16, back to 12, right. right? Back to eight, up to 16, 19, 20, back down to 12, mm. right? You know, and and you spend three years, not three days, um, mm. crashing through into the other side. And, and again, whether that was your choice of that analogy, desert. You know, we all know that the quicker you can cross the desert, the more likely you, you like to be alive at the other side of it. You see, exactly. Yeah, exactly. You that. don't want to spend yeah. much time in the desert. No, no. Um, one thing I did want to then ask you there uh, is then, so the concept of the unicorn. So so let's just say we've achieved that. We've got across that desert and we've now got this substantial thing. We've got, we've raised a capital, we're doing it. So does do unicorns exist is it hype is it reality a friend of mine gave me a great question just recently and he said i think you know why are they even called unicorns they're called unicorns because they're a fantasy creature and they only exist in the minds of founders and fund managers so i'm fascinated given your you know let's let's do this if we you know if we're serious we're going for it either talk through your your view on unicorns mm. full stop or an example of a thing where you think's a fantastic story such as that yeah, so a unicorn is a performance business where all conditions were perfect. Um, so the conditions for success were just right. So, for example, if you had have taken Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak and just simply, you know, plonked them in 1983 rather than 1977, yeah, you know, you're not going to get an apple. Uh, you know, the condition, you might have gotten a very successful PC business. Maybe you might have gotten a business that even got to hundreds of millions. Um, but you, you know, you might have got a business that got to a billion, but you wouldn't have gotten a business that got to a trillion. Um, so, uh, you know, the the unicorn business is the business where it's a performance business. It's the right people, the right vision, 
the right product and service, the right team comes together, the, the supernatural funding all comes together. So it's just, it's, it's that magical moment where you're building a performance business and everything starts yeah. to converge. Um, and, and, and a big part of that is the timing element, right? So the element that you can't, you can't really plan for it's it's the the fact that it, the two elements that are very very hard to to plan for is access to extremely deep pockets and the timing yeah. is perfect yeah fascinating you mentioned there about 76 compared to 83 um one of the other guests on uh the podcast a while ago um uh, John from uh, Space 48, we were talking there about Malcolm Gladwell's book Outliers. It's a similar thing that says, you know, the fact that, you know, Bill Gates just was fortunate enough to be at the college where they'd already bought the mainframe. Mm. And it goes through some amazing examples of that, that the t all the things you just said, the timing was just right. And I yeah. do think, I do think sometimes that's, again, a lesson or a takeaway, hopefully, to listeners is, is, is be cognizant of where you are in your journey. Be cognizant of the timing. Be cognizant of the opportunities around you. Just because the timing's right for somebody else doesn't mean it's right for you, potentially. So there, there are a few things. So, listen, I'm conscious of time. Talking of time, and I'm conscious of time, and, and I've taken lots of your time today, Daniel. And, and, and again, it's, you know, and I use the phrase gold dust, but it's it's fantastic to uh, to get this to get this view. A, a you know, not only did you talk about it so passionately, but you've been there and done it. And, and you know, I, I said at the outset of this, you know, we didn't want theorists. We talk about people with battle scars. And obviously, you, you've built uh, your business. Talk to us then just briefly about where are you now? Obviously, we I know you from the scorecard. Yeah. So map use scorecard in terms of central on our website. And it's about, you know, score your financial maturity. And it helps us, yes, get leads, but it also really helps us understand the position or the potential position of that person and that client before we speak to them, which is amazing. So talk to us about where you are with that now. What's next? What's 2023 got in hold for Daniel and Dent? And yeah, so I've I've got two main businesses that um, I run. Dent is a performance business, but it's a group of companies um, that are focused on growth services for entrepreneurs. Um, and we have a diverse range of services and training uh, for entrepreneurs and um uh, it's built around you know our particular strategy, our scale-up strategy, and it's a global business. So offices in London, Sydney, and Toronto, um, and um, and included in that is is a publishing business with over a thousand authors and uh, a PR business that uh, has a very focused specialty. Uh, so we've basically got a, a really nice business there. Um, and then um, the fast growth tech company is ScoreApp, and ScoreApp is marketing technology that focuses on quiz marketing. Um, quiz marketing is a specialized form of marketing where you get a prospect to fill in a quiz. Um, yep. And uh, we call it a scorecard because it's a little bit more of a grown up type of quiz rather than a, rather than a fan, you know, fun, yeah, hit, yeah. you know, teenager like quiz. It's a, it's, you know, it's a scorecard like, um, you know, is your business ready for funding or, um, are you as profitable as you could be? Those kind of, you know, answering those kind of questions. Um, and we provide the technology that turns that into a very valuable source of leads um, and in, into a very valuable source of clients. So it's a qualifying tool. It's an insight tool. Um, so the more people who fill in quizzes for your business, the more leads you'll have, the more qualified clients you'll be able to talk to, and the more overarching insights you'll have into what's making your clients buy and what's making them tick. So that's called Score App. 
Uh, currently, we're on a very fast growth trajectory. We're growing at 6% month on month um, at the moment. Impressive. Not quite, well yeah, done. not quite where we need to be. We want to be mm. more like 10% month on month. Um, but uh, but certainly, given that we've only raised a small amount of funding and um, and we're we're still just getting a few things uh, squared away, um, we're we're pretty happy with six percent month on month growth. Um, and um, yeah, it's it's a it's an exciting business. I've written a book called Scorecard Marketing, um, which explains the whole strategy and how to implement it. Um, we're doing an integration with uh, AI that allows AI to write a lot of the content and the copy that will come out next year. So that that's interesting. Yeah, so that the implementation of the scorecards uh, pretty pretty easy. Um, is, can I ask a question on that? Is is it so? Is that content content creation? Because one of the things that I found is the point that you said that you know the 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 more grown up, the more intelligent the questions that you ask will help you obtain the greater qualified opportunity and you know without being disrespectful to anybody avoid the time wasters the tire kickers mm. whatever fra phrase we want but sometimes helping or that client understanding the questions that they need to ask their client end user is often difficult are you talking here about the opportunity for ai to say you know here are uh, this might be a bad example 50 proven questions in this tech space or what what's what does the ai do yeah so like for example i just I just demoed AI. Um, I just t simply typed into OpenAI, um, uh, write 10 yes or no questions to determine whether someone is ready to run a marathon. Um, right. And it wrote right. 10 absolutely brilliant questions. Yeah. And then I said, write 10 more, but emphasis on diet. Um, and it wrote 10 questions that relate to diet right. and running a marathon. And then I said, write landing page copy uh, to convince somebody who's thinking of running a marathon that they should take this quiz to determine whether they're ready yeah. to run a marathon. And it wrote beautiful copy. Uh, and then I said, write a response to the quiz telling someone that they are not ready to run a marathon based on how they answered the quiz. And it wrote yep. an amazing response. Fascinating. Yeah. So when, that is really exciting, Daniel. That, yeah. There's that's... a video I did of it and it took four minutes yeah. to create about yeah. 2000 words worth of content that can yeah. plug into a, a scorecard. There's no excuse now for not being creative. I mean, mm. AI can do so much of it for you. You know, it's, it, it's essentially going to do the heavy lifting. It's, it's like electricity, um, you know, someone might say, oh, I just don't have the strength to load my clothes into a, into a clothes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> into a washing machine. It's like the washing machine is going to do most of the work. Just put your, put your clothes in, yeah. um, you know, because the machine is now doing most of the creativity. That that is that is fascinating, and and as I say, having 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 used the score app, the scorecard app, and 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 having faced those challenges over many years, exactly that. How do you how do you write the question in the format that the person's going to read it and respond accordingly is is really exciting. And I, th and I think that will open up not only your own business, but will open up that technology in uh, in lots of other areas. That's that's amazing. Um, listen, we're literally just coming up to an hour, which is as far as we usually go. So. I can only thank you again, Daniel. I think we've we've covered lots there. Um, my one last question, and you may have covered this, you may have covered this before, but it's just a brief answer, which is, so, you know, I I created this um, map room analogy because I'm I'm fascinated military, military history, and I say we sit here today in Salford, and I can see the Imperial War Museum out the window. So I am 
Bernard Montgomery. I've got the 7th Armoured Division. I've got my backside to Tobruk. And I've got to get those desert rats across that desert. Yeah. What's the one single piece of advice you're going to give an entrepreneur to say, this is what's going to get you across that desert and keep you alive at the other side? Uh, getting across the desert, the, it's the speed. Um, so you, what you want to do is be brave. Uh, you want to do something like have a three-day conference where you bring in 50 people at once um, and you secure funding. You bring in 50 people. You set up your teams of teams. You introduce the executive team, the vision, the mission, the values. Um, and you go from a 10-person business to a 50-person business like that. Um, and, you know, this is where uh, you might bring in a conference of 150 people and select the 50 people you're going to work with, right? Um, and, and maybe a bunch of them self-select out. But you, you want to do something bold and fast. You want to secure your funding mechanism. You want to have a really solid, well-thought-through plan in place. And then go fast um, and build build the business at that next level as quick as you can. Maybe I'm maybe I'm uh, being overly ambitious. Maybe it's going to be three months, but you really don't want to do it in three years. Um, you know, move. You want to go from this tiny little core team that that proved what it was doing to being this bigger, more valuable business, and you want to do that as quick as possible. Um, and the second thing I'd say is don't. Just don't do it. Yeah, I was going to ask the same give, thing. Give up. Stay All in right. the oasis, Daniel. If you're going to go across that desert, everything you've said, be bold, be brave, be bloody quick. Yeah. Or guess what? Stay by the oasis. And yeah, it's, or, it's fine. yeah, exactly. The smart answer, assume that you're not six foot six. Right? <laughs> assume that you're not the next Richard yeah. Branson. Assume that you're not yeah. Elon Musk um, and give up. Now, here's the thing. If you're listening to this, and I say give up, and you go, yeah, you're right. That's that's fine. Then give up. Yeah. And if you're listening to this, and go, and I say give up, and you go, there's no way I'm giving up. Like, no, no chance. I'm, of course, I'm going to do it in three days. I'll do it in three hours, right? If you're mm -hmm. that, if you're that belligerent, um, ridiculous person who can kick doors down and get that stuff done, and that's your that's your jam, then go for it. But assume you're not, um, and enjoy life. You happen to be born at an incredible time in history where a three to 12 person business can make millions. Yeah. It can be super successful. It can make an impact. You can have fun, freedom, and flexibility. You can have almost all of the benefits. Um, probably the only one thing you won't be able to do is sell the business for a life-changing amount of money in one hit. But other than that, you're going to have a business you don't even want to sell uh, because it's going to be so great. So, you know, you happen to be born at a time where that's possible lean into it and enjoy the lifestyle business. It's no, there's no shame in that. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, if you're a moron like me uh, yeah. and you think to yourself, <laughs> yeah. Let's do it again, multi going plural, do it again and again. Yeah, exactly. Right. Do, do, do plenty of them. Um, and, uh, and, and, and obviously, you know, that's, that's what you're built for. So you've got to make that decision. Are you built for it or not? And if you are, go for it. Go go hard, fast. Go go fun. Go be brave. Go have fun with it. Go make a big impact with it. 
Um, and if that's not you, if you're if you're anything short of a hundred percent on uh, on that this is the right thing for you, yep. enjoy the lifestyle business. Yeah, stay by that oasis, Daniel. Fascinating. Really appreciate your time. So all that's really left for me to say is thank you for joining us in the map room today. For everybody listening, we hope it's been enjoyable. We hope we've brought you something again you can put into your business, and we look forward to seeing you back in the map room soon. Thanks and bye for now. The map room has been brought to you by Map, the outsourced finance function for digital agencies subscribe via your usual podcast app to never miss an episode